What's up? I'm your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo, pastor and online Bible teacher. It wasn't all that long ago that I lacked the confidence, knowledge, and tools to feed my desire to dig deeper into God's Word. Fast forward past many lessons learned, mentors, and personal encounters with God, and you'll see the incredible privilege God has given me to teach the Bible to others. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's been God's Word that has led me to discover and fulfill the purpose God designed for me. I created the Christian Bro Code Podcast to help you on your journey to do the same. If you're a Christian bro who wants to grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead in a way that honors God, you're in the right place. Let's get started, bro. Hey, what's up? It's your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Christian Bro Code Podcast. This is season three, episode number one. Yeah, you know what? I just decided to go ahead and start fresh. I I don't know when the seasons are starting and ending, but since it had been so long since I had done an episode, I said, you know what? Let's just start fresh. So this is season three, episode number one. And I don't know when you're listening. You may be listening a year after I publish this, but this is being published on May the 16th of 2020, season three, episode number one, May 16th, 2020. Let me remind you that there is a new podcast episode, the current publishing schedule right now is the first and third Saturday of every month. There is a new podcast episode available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you pick up podcasts. And I do, I do the episodes on Saturdays because that's probably the day that you're doing either cutting the grass, uh, changing the oil, doing whatever you have to do at home. And I don't know about you, but I, I like having something to listen to as I'm doing those chores. So I figured, Hey, why not produce or publish the episodes on Saturdays. That way my bros can have something to listen to that will encourage them, challenge them to live, love, lead, to honor God. And so new episodes, first and third Saturday of every month. But also there is a YouTube live show on the Christian Bro Code YouTube channel, the second and fourth Sunday of every month. So be sure to check that out. All right. So what we're going to talk about today, I've mentioned to you that the Christian Bro Code podcast, the entire purpose of the Christian Bro Code is to help you live, love, lead, to honor God. And I think I think the best way that we can go about learning how to do that is by rooting ourselves in Scripture. Now, there are so many other factors at play when it comes to our spiritual growth, but I, I think that uh, Scripture and our knowledge of Scripture is so important when it comes to our spiritual growth. And so I'm doing I'm doing Bible study type of stuff. I'm selecting a passage of scripture, walking you through it, sharing some exegetical and interpretive insights with you, and then suggesting how we can apply the truths that we learn from scripture in our everyday lives so that we can live, love, and lead to honor God. So for this episode, I've selected a passage that I found very interesting. I found it very interesting. It's in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Paul's letter to Titus, but it has some really good stuff, and we're going to focus more than anything on, you know, we talk about live, love, and lead to honor God, the lead part of that. And, and I'm going to, you'll see, it's going to become pretty obvious why in selecting this passage, we're going to focus on the lead part of live, love, and lead to honor God. So Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, 
And I, I'm actually going to focus, like my, my attention in this episode is going to be in verses five through nine, and then we'll, we'll give some, a little bit of attention to verses 10 through 16, but primarily we're going to be looking at verses five through nine. And the reason for that is that I think that verses five through nine, they provide the, the what, and then verses 10 through 16 provide the why. And, and I'll, I'll explain that as we proceed. Now, whenever I do a, a study over a passage of Scripture, whether I'm preparing a Bible study, a podcast episode, a YouTube uh, video, a sermon even, okay, what I, what I start doing is that I begin with a background study of that book. Now, I don't always have to do this because, let's say, for example, if I had already preached a sermon on, on Titus, uh, well, I did that background study. If a couple of months later I'm I'm doing another study on Titus, I'm not going to go through that whole study all over again. I'll go back to the original study that I did, the background study I did, and I'll review the notes. Maybe I'll add some additional notes. Maybe I'll I'll go refresh my memory. But for the most part, when I'm studying a passage of scripture to prepare something to present, if it's been a while since I've done a background study on that particular writing, I'll refresh my memory, and so. I figured that since this is our first time in the episode talking about Titus, before we get into the passage, I'm going to give you just some some very general and some very basic overview material, background material for the book of Titus. Now, this is, in, in, in my process, the process that I use for studying a passage of Scripture, this is an important step, because you need to keep in mind that we're studying Scripture, and these are writings from you know, nearly 2,000 years ago, a lot has changed in 2,000 years. And so what I'm trying to do as I, as I do this background study on a, on a book of the Bible is I'm trying to understand as best I can the situation, the context, the culture, the, the worldview, the way of thinking of that time, that era. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to become a first century Christian, so to speak. And if we put all the cards on the table, that is impossible to do purely and 100%. I will always be a 21st century American, right? I, I can't change that. And there are certain things that make up my worldview that are, they're just so ingrained that I, I, I'm not, I'm not even aware of some of the things that make up my worldview. Well, that's where I say that I can't fully become a first century Christian, a recipient of this letter, but I can try my best so that I can understand the message as it was intended to be received. And so this is where the background study of a Bible book comes into play, makes it very helpful, very beneficial. And so let me give you some general information related to Titus so that I think it will help us as we dive into this passage of uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And beginning with this, Titus was written by Paul, and it was written to one of his companions, of course, by the name of Titus. Now, it's interesting with Paul's writings that Paul's writings, the way we've titled them, whoever put the titles on them, they titled them based on the recipients of those writings. So First and Second Corinthians, the recipients were the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of those, they're titled based on the recipients of that writing. And so it's the same thing with Titus. Titus, in this case, is the recipient. Paul is the author. Titus 
is the recipient. Now, that's a little bit different from other sections of Scripture, for example, the Gospels. The Gospels, they have their titles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, based on the author of that Gospel. You look at the Old Testament prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, you know, the minor prophets, and they're named after the prophet who delivered the prophecies that are now contained in those books. But Paul's Paul's writings are a little bit different. They're they're titled after the recipients. And so in this case, we have a letter by Paul to one of his companions by the name of Titus. This book of Titus, this letter that Paul write to, wrote to Titus, is, is categorized as one of Paul's pastoral epistles. So it's first and second Timothy and Titus that are Paul's pastoral epistles. And they're they're titled that way because Paul is giving some, you know, generally speaking, some pastoral advice, some pastoral information to Timothy and to Titus. Interestingly enough, we don't know a whole lot about this man, Titus. We know a lot about Timothy, quite a bit about Timothy, but we don't know a whole lot about Titus. What we know is that he was one of Paul's companions. We're not exactly sure how they met, where they met, because uh, there's no mention of Titus in the book of Acts. Now, that's in the book of Acts, we find out a lot of things about Paul's companions, but Titus is not mentioned at all in the book of Acts. So it's a bit of a mystery as to how Titus and Paul made a connection and what exactly the the history was between them. But we do know that they were companions and that Paul more than likely was the one who bought, brought Titus to the gospel. And we find that out in the first verses of, of, of Titus. So even though we're not entirely sure, we know that they were companions, and we know that more than likely it was Paul who brought, who brought Titus to the gospel. Now, we do find out some things about Titus in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. So you'll remember that in Acts chapter 15, Paul went to Jerusalem. There was this big debate between Paul and some of the apostles about some of the requirements that they were going to enforce for Gentile converts to Christianity. And Paul was against anything by the way of regulation or Jewish law that the Gentiles had to fulfill in order to be considered full-blown Christians. And so one of those things was circumcision. Paul was dead set against circumcising Gentile converts to Christianity in order for them to be considered full Christians. And so we find out in Galatians chapter 2 that Titus was with Paul when Paul went to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 to have this debate. Now, his name is not mentioned in Acts chapter 15, but again, we find out in Galatians chapter 2 that Titus was with Paul. And then very importantly, this is going to be important, it's going to play out pretty importantly as we look at this passage that we're about to see. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 2, Paul says that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now that's going to be important. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. He converted to Christianity, but he was not circumcised. That's going to be important as we go down later into Titus's, uh, uh, the things that Paul writes to Titus, and I'll point those out when we get there. Um, just as a total side note, some, some have suggested, and there's no firm basis for this, pure speculation, but some have suggest, suggested that Titus was actually some kind of a relative to Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and of the Book of Acts. Eh, I'll throw that out there. I, there's, there's nothing to confirm that necessarily. What we know also about Titus is that Titus had some leadership responsibilities, 
at the church in Corinth. Uh, pretty significant leadership responsibilities at the church in Corinth left there by Paul to fulfill some responsibilities. And then where it really concerns us is Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to finish up some tasks that needed to be completed. And so when when Titus receives this letter from Paul, he's on the island of Crete. Now, Crete is an island, kind of looks like Cuba in my opinion, but it's to the southeast of Greece. It's in the Aegean Sea, southeast of Greece. There's this little island called Crete. And that's where that's where Titus was when he received this letter on behalf of the Apostle Paul. Paul had left him there to fulfill some responsibilities that needed to be taken care of while he was there, some tasks that needed to be completed. Interestingly enough, regarding the island of Crete and the Christian church or churches on the island of Crete, we don't know who started those churches. We don't know when those churches started. Apparently, this is what it, this is what it seems like, that when Paul arrived on the island of Crete, more than likely with Titus, there was already some kind of a Christian group there or groups. Crete is an island made up of several towns, and so it appears that there were Christian communities in several of the towns in the island of Crete before Paul arrived there. It seems pretty clear that it wasn't Paul who established the churches in Crete, but we we don't know that for sure, and we don't exactly know when they started, nor who it was who started those churches in Crete. What we do know is that they were kind of messed up. There were some issues going on there so that when Paul arrives in Crete with Titus, when it's time for Paul to leave, he leaves Titus in Crete to clean up some of the stuff that's happening there. Now, one theory that I found interesting with regards to how the church or the churches in Crete started is is as follows, that the churches in Crete started as a result of the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Now, you'll remember that the disciples were in the upper room the Holy Spirit, they're baptizing the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues, and in the street outside, it says that there were Jews from every nation on the earth. And with these Jews, how they responded when they heard the disciples speaking in tongues, they said this, wow, what's going on? What is this? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue, in our language. And so then Luke gives a list of all the different nationalities that were represented there, all the all the countries that Jews had come from to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, who was there? And, and among that list, you'll see that there were Jews from Crete. Interesting, right? So some have proposed that possibly, maybe, because Peter got up and, and preached the first post-resurrection, post-Pentecost sermon and 3,000 were saved— because among those 3,000, there were people from Crete, maybe one of them was saved and took the gospel back to the island of Crete, and maybe that's how the gospel arrived at Crete. It's speculation. We we can't say that for sure, but I think that's an interesting theory. I, I like that theory. That's interesting. Again, we don't know that. We don't know that for sure. So in case, in case you're wondering, all of this information— uh, you know, I, I wasn't, obviously, none of us was born knowing this information. You find out this information as you're doing your Bible study. And what I do is that I use a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia to get all of this information, right? And in fact, uh, I, I have some recommendations for you. I have a, a free training that you can pick up at the ChristianBroCode.com. It's called How to Kickstart Your Bible Study Library. And, and as, as part of that free training for you, I make a recommendation, two Bible dictionaries that I recommend that you get, 
and and I, I explain to you how to get a hold of them, what they're useful for, and and how how you can use them to enhance your own personal Bible study. So if you haven't had a chance to do so, head on over to the ChristianBroCode.com. You can do it, I mean, literally right now as you're listening to the podcast and sign up for free to get this free training on how to kickstart your Bible study library. That's a Bible dictionary is essential to your Bible study library. And so I explained some of that in more detail in that training. Go ahead and pick it up at the ChristianBroCode.com. Now, so that's some the general overview, some background, general background information related to Paul's letter to Titus. Now, I want to jump in beginning at verse 5. Now, verses 1 through 4 is the introduction. It's kind of Paul's business card, and and it's it's a fairly lengthy introduction, very, very theological even. Some of Paul's introductions are very basic, grace and peace to you, greetings, and et cetera. But in, in his introduction in Titus, verses 1 through 4, the salutation, uh, he, he gets into some pretty pretty heavy stuff. Uh, maybe we'll get into that in another episode, but I really want to focus on verses 5 through 9 because I think they have some some incredible, some excellent points to share with us as Christian bros who want to live, love, and especially lead to honor God. So I'm going to begin reading Titus chapter 1, verse 5. says like this, This is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul talking to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Right away in verse 5, we we find out exactly why Paul left Titus on Crete. Essentially, here it is, leadership development. There were some things that when you and I, Titus, we arrived on the island, there were things that were out of order. And when I left, I left you on Crete with the assignment to put things into order. There were some things that we worked on while we were there together, but there were some other things that still remained to be put into order. And that's why I left you there. Specifically, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So here's the situation that we have. Paul is telling Titus, your job right now, your attention, your focus needs to be on leadership development, appointing, identifying, recruiting, maybe even training leaders and appointing them, establishing them in every town as I directed you. Now, I see a couple of of scenarios that could be the case here. Number one, Paul says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So again, Crete was an island made up of several towns. So it's possible that what Paul is saying is in every town that there is already a Christian church, a Christian community that is gathering, make sure that every single one of those towns has an elder, a leader, an overseer. Elder in this case is is a term, a, a leadership term. It's a leadership title. It's in the original language. It's presbuteros, and it, it's it's a leadership term. It's a level of leadership, a fairly high level of leadership. And so Paul is telling Titus, every town wherever there is a Christian community gathering, that that town should have a leader, someone who's overseeing the church or the churches in that town. The other scenario I think Paul could be alluding to is that I think there were probably some towns in Crete that didn't have a church yet, a Christian community. And so maybe Paul is saying, okay, it's not only that I want you to make sure that the established churches have leadership, but in the towns that don't yet have a a church gathering, make sure you establish some leaders to, to take the gospel to those towns. 
And that's very, very much in line with Paul's way of operating. He would go into a town. He would more than likely, more often than not, he'd go to the synagogue. If there was a Jewish synagogue, he'd go to the synagogue. But he would begin to present the gospel, get a few converts, train them, mentor them, disciple them, and then leave them in charge of the church. And so he's really he's really following the same pattern, or he's he's telling Titus to follow the same pattern. Hey, make sure you're establishing leaders. You, you can't stay in Crete forever. You've got other stuff you need to do, but you need to get leaders going first. And in the towns that don't have leaders, appoint some leaders. Go into those towns, take the gospel to those towns, and just start the process all over again. So th- this this is important. We have some leadership development. If you ever if you ever question or wonder, does the Bible directly address leadership and leadership development? Yes, absolutely. And Titus is one of those writings that very clearly talk about the development of leaders, specifically within the Christian church. I don't know about you, but I've heard some teachings on leadership that take portions of Scripture and they kind of have to force it. You know, they they kind of have to uh, you know kind of wrestle it and massage it and tweak it and and make it into a leadership teaching. Well, that's not the case with the book of Titus and with this passage in particular. It's very clear that what Paul is talking about is leadership development. Identify, recruit, train, mentor, disciple, and appoint leaders in every town where there's a Christian uh, community. Now, I, I keep saying Christian community or Christian gathering because at that time, there there weren't churches the way we understand churches, that there were buildings and, um, you know, like we have nowadays. Back then, churches would gather more than likely in homes, in the homes of, of believers. Uh, at times, if there was a more wealthy believer who had a larger home, more space, then that's where the church would gather. But it wasn't a dedicated building until sometime later. So I keep saying, you know, I hesitate to use the word church because I don't want uh, a building like we have today to come to your mind. It, it was a group of believers who would gather more than likely at a home, but that was the church, right? That was the church at Corinth. That was the church at Crete in this case. So there, there's the setup. We know why Paul left Titus in Crete and exactly what he's supposed to be doing during his time in Crete. So we go on to verse 6, and what we begin to see in verse 6 are the characteristics, the qualities, the requirements for leadership, as as Paul understands spiritual and Christian leadership and church leadership. So beginning in verse six, bam, Paul says in verse five, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Verse six, here are the qualities that a leader should demonstrate if you're going to appoint him as a leader. So this is what he says. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's verse six. Those are some of the qualities that Paul wants to see in the leaders that Titus is going to appoint in the different towns on the island of Crete. Now, he says, if anyone is above reproach, now that's that's a high bar to clear. That That's a high standard, and on purpose. It's meant to be that way. But when we read anyone above reproach, what I don't want us to read is you have to be perfect. There, there's, there's, never, there's never this expectation that you're not going to stumble. There's never this expectation that someone is absolutely perfect in everything that they do. But Paul does expect for a leader to be above reproach, meaning that they have 
this is how I understand it, that they have a good, solid reputation and, and that no one can really come to them and question and charge them with having done something so heinous, so horrible that people would just go, oh my goodness. No, this person is above reproach. They're not perfect. They've got their mistakes. They've got their flaws, but their, their behavior, their character, it's above reproach. You, you can't point at them and say, man, that guy, he's just got, he's messed up. No, they're above reproach. Not perfect, but they're above reproach. Good character, good reputation. You can't really say anything bad about them. And this, this is important. This, this aspect of being above reproach in Christian leadership, it's important. It's important, I, I, at least that I see, at least for two reasons. Number one, it's important to be a leader of, of that who is above reproach inside the church. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about uh, this situation in Crete, that the leaders needed to be above reproach, and they needed to demonstrate that, and the people in the church, the people they were leading, needed to know that they were above reproach. Otherwise, they weren't going to follow them. They needed to be examples of godly living above reproach. But on top of that, these leaders needed to be above reproach so that people who weren't yet Christians, those who were outside the church, those who hadn't accepted the gospel yet, would see these people and say, you know, it makes sense to me that they put that person as a leader in that church, in that new church that's starting over there. I, I don't agree with that church. I don't believe the stuff that they believe. But yeah, that that guy, it makes sense that he's a leader in that church. He, he He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Because imagine if some of the leaders were, were of questionable character, if they were not above reproach, the damage that that would cause to the gospel or the hindrance that that would be to the gospel, that if you had a, a, a leader who was known to be a scoundrel, who was known to be a womanizer, who was known to be just not above reproach. And then you have some people going and trying to share the gospel with non-believers on the island of Crete. They could easily come back to them and say, hey, you're sharing this new gospel with me, but man, your leader or one of the leaders that you have in your church, do you even know what he does? Do you even, I mean, you you have no idea so the idea of being above reproach isn't important only within the context or within the four walls of the church. It's important because of the impact that it has on those who aren't believers. It's it's important. That's important that 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 Paul tells Titus this. You got to make sure they're above reproach so that the people inside the church will follow them, but also so that their reputation it guards the gospel. It doesn't damage the gospel. It doesn't hinder the advancement of the gospel. He goes on to say the husband of one wife. Now there's been lots of debate as to what that means. And, and I don't think um, there's any clear consensus or any clear answer as to exactly what that means. The husband of one wife. Now on the surface, it seems pretty easy. Well, uh, the obvious answer is that this man doesn't have more than one wife. Okay. That's obvious. But what the debate has been as, okay, what about someone who has been divorced and remarried does that count or, or does that disqualify this person for leadership? What about a widow? A guy was married, his wife died and he remarried. D- does that disqualify him? So there's, there's been endless debates without any satisfactory solution as to what the husband of one wife means. Now, I think, I think 
because of teachings that we see elsewhere in Scripture regarding remarriage, regarding even divorce and remarriage, I think that the husband of one wife in this case means you, you can't be a polygamist. You can't have more than one living wife. And the reason that's that's important for for Titus to emphasize that is because we're going to find out later that the the people and the culture and the society in Crete was pretty bad. You know, it, it was, it was pretty bad. In fact, even now today in the 21st century, if you want to insult somebody, you'd call them a Cretan. I mean, if you ever call someone a Cretan, you're saying, man, you're, you're just, you're scum. You know, you're, you're, you're unsophisticated. You're, 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 you're just, you're not a good person if you're a Cretan. So it's very possible that on the Island of Crete, among the non-believers, that it was either common or you just kind of turn a blind eye to a man who had multiple wives or, or who was an adulterer, a womanizer. And Paul is saying, okay, we're going contra culture here. It, that, that guy, even though the society, the culture in Crete might accept it in Christian leadership, a leader has to be the husband of one wife. He can't, he can't have, he can't have more than one wife that damages the reputation and the testimony of the gospel. So the husband of one wife, I think that that's what taking into consideration uh, teachings elsewhere in scripture and just the background of Crete itself. I think we're safe to say that the husband of one wife means you you can only have one living wife, not so much that uh, someone who has divorced and remarried is automatically disqualified in Christian leadership. And even that a widower who remarries is disqualified from from Christian leadership. I, I that that's my take on that. Okay, but you know, if you start looking up commentaries, you'll see that there is quite a bit of debate, and no one is absolutely certain on that. But the next qualification that Paul talks about is that his children are believers, and they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this is a tough one. This is a tough one, because Paul is saying in order for someone to serve in Christian leadership, their kids, essentially, their kids have to be above reproach. And, and not only, I mean, his kids, they have to be believers. And it's not only that Paul is saying, you know, you can't have bad kids, but your kids have to be believers. If you're going to serve in Christian leadership at the church, your kids have to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You know, so if in, at least in the context of Crete and what Paul is writing to Titus, he's saying, if you've got, if you've got someone in the church who you're considering for leadership, but their kids are a mess, they're disqualified. And that's, that's tough. That, that's a hard pill to swallow. And, and then more so that the kids have to be believers. Now, one of the things I teach at, at my church, and I, you know, I just, I, I struggle with this because I don't, I don't know exactly what to make of this that Paul is saying. At, at what age are you off the hook? You know, at what point would Paul say, all right, look, I get it. Your kids are 35 and they're not believers yet. <laughs> that's that's really not on you anymore, right? It's it, it, it's a tough thing because, like I said, at my church where I pastor, one of the things I teach our parents, especially parents who have older kids, and they're just really bummed out that their kids aren't serving the Lord, and they tend to blame themselves sometimes. I tell them, look, you, you can only do so much, and each individual is responsible for his or her own salvation and for their decision to follow Christ or not. And, and what, what I tell people is that 
you're going to be held responsible for the process, not necessarily the product, meaning the process. Did you teach your kids the ways of the Lord? Did you take them to church? Did you disciple them? Did you teach them the right ways? That's the process. The product is entirely up to your kids if they're going to decide to serve the Lord or not. I mean, you don't have a whole lot of say in that. You can influence them. You can teach them. You can train them to make a decision to follow the Lord. But at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to have to decide. So when Paul says this, that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, again, debauchery and insubordination seems that would have been uh, not necessarily acceptable in the culture and the society of Crete, but common at least. And apparently maybe even among the younger the younger people in Crete. But Paul is saying if if the kids of a leader or a potential leader are are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, that, that man, that father is disqualified from leadership. I don't know. I don't know exactly at what age that responsibility ceases. And Paul doesn't give any further direction. The word that he uses there for children doesn't necessarily give a, an age range, like, you know, five to 10 or 10 to 15 or 15 to 18. It just says your, your kids, they're, they're always going to be your kids, your descendants. So I, I, I struggle with that how to really understand that I'm not entirely sure, but I would say if I had to interpret that for, for Titus, it was crucial that these men who were going to be appointed to leadership, that they had demonstrated leadership in their own home first. And this, this seems to be what Paul is getting to and what he's trying to communicate to Titus. Listen, leadership for these men, it has to start at home. It has to start with their wife, and it has to start with their kids. I, I think that's the bigger point that Paul is trying to get across to Titus. Leadership, spiritual Christian leadership, starts in these guys' homes. And so it, it's, it's appropriate, Titus, it's not out of bounds for you to investigate their home life. That's crazy. That's crazy. That that Paul would say, hey, you, you need to know what their kids are doing. The kids of these leaders, you need to know what they're doing. And if they're open to these types of charges of debauchery or insubordination, guess what? Their dad, they can't be a leader. And so how do you find that stuff out? Either either they had the, the kids had a reputation of being wild, insubordinate, debaucherous, and everyone just knew that. Or maybe they were hiding it really well, and Titus now has the responsibility of maybe doing a home visit, I don't know, <laughs> of maybe doing some interviews and finding out, all right, how are these kids really? How is your marriage really? And and it, it seems almost as if Paul is giving Titus some permission to be a little nosy. And that's that's important for Paul in establishing Christian leadership on the island of Crete. Why? Because the gospel is that important. Be, because the, the protecting the reputation of the gospel is that important. Because whatever the Christian leadership of the church is, that's going to be the reputation of the gospel. So if you have a bunch of ingrates, you have a bunch of, uh, of leaders who cannot be held above reproach, that's going to be the image of the gospel on the island of Crete. So Paul has no problem telling Titus, you be nosy. You figure out what's going on in these people's homes before you appoint them to leadership. That's how important, that's how sacred, and in some sense, that's how delicate 
the gospel is, that the reputation of the gospel rests and depends on the reputation and the character of those who are taking the gospel. That's important. He goes on and gives some additional characteristics in verse 7. He says, for an overseer, now this is a different term that he uses here. He started off in verse 5 by saying elders. Now he uses the word overseer. Uh, th- there's there's some difference of opinion here as well. Is Are these terms interchangeable? Are these different levels of leadership? Is a, an elder someone who's in charge of all the churches in a given town, and then an overseer is just in charge of one church? It, it could be that, or it could be that they're just used interchangeably. I don't know. Take your pick. Uh, check the commentary. See what they say. Um, I think they can be used interchangeably. I, I, I think so. I think so. So Paul says in verse 7, the, the more important point, rather than trying to nitpick and say, is elder and overseer the same thing? Okay, it's important to know the difference between them, but I think what's more important are the characteristics that Paul lists for an overseer. He says, for an overseer, this is verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. There's that that standard again. That person must be above reproach. Not perfect, but they have to have demonstrated good character. They have to have good reputation in the church and in the community. They must be above reproach. Again, not perfection, but above reproach. And then he goes on to, I think, to qualify or to define what he means when he says by being, uh, what he means by saying a person who is above reproach. He says he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Now, each one of those in and of themselves are, are, are important. And then you put them together and you realize that I, th- I think there are some aspects of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about over in Galatians that are demonstrated here. Because look, if, if you take each one of these negative characteristics that Paul lists and you flip them on their head, meaning you give them a positive spin, you, you'll see some of the fruits of the Spirit so for, or, or aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. So he says, uh, he must not be arrogant. What's the opposite of being arrogant? I think it's being humble. So this person must be humble. That's definitely being guided by the Spirit. That's definitely a fruit of the Spirit. Being arrogant is wrong. The opposite of that is being humble. So a leader must be humble. And how many arrogant leaders do we see? Not not, not only in politics or in government or in, in uh, business, but even within the church. Well, they're not qualified for leadership, according to Paul. They must be humble, not arrogant. Someone who is, uh, he says, he must not be quick-tempered. Now, that's that's another important characteristic because, especially maybe even as as men, the 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 temp our, our temper can just get the better of us. How many times have you said, "Man, my my temper just got away from me," and and Paul is saying here, look, if you've got someone who is really struggling, Titus, if you've got someone who's struggling with controlling their 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 temperament then their temper and it just gets away from them and just any little thing sets them off they're not qualified for leadership and so when you compare that to what a fruit of the spirit may be being quick tempered I, I would say that there's a meekness and 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 being humble right humility humbleness is the opposite of that because you, you when you're meek and you're patient these things that would otherwise automatically trigger you, no, you've got them in check, right? You, you're not quick-tempered. You don't you don't react instantly when something bothers you. 
um, you, you know, you know how to control your temper, because I'll tell you something, people know when you're losing your temper with them, even if you think you're controlling it, they can see the wrinkles in your forehead. They can see your eyes starting to beat up a little bit. They can, you know, they can see that. And so Paul is saying, look, we need to guard the reputation of the gospel. And if you've got people who just fly off the handle for any little thing, they're not qualified for leadership. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard. Now, I mean, there, there's some obvious reasons you don't want people who are, who are drunks or alcoholics in leadership. But I think, I think what, a, what, what this demonstrates, someone who is a drunkard, I think is someone who lacks self-control, self-discipline, right? Any, anyone who is given over into any kind of vice or bad habit, addiction, is somebody who lacks self-control. And that's, that's one of those things that the Holy Spirit gives us, self-control. We all struggle with temptations. We all could easily become addicted to anything. We, we all could develop bad habits. Any one of us, that's when we rely on the, the power, the grace, the, the, the Holy Spirit working in us so that we can exercise self-control, self-leadership. And I think a person who is a drunkard can be symbolic of someone who is addicted to anything that is ultimately destructive. And Paul is saying, if, if, if you've got someone who is a drunkard, they lack self-control and self-discipline, they can't be a leader. Neither can they be violent. Now, that makes sense, right? Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So I think Paul is echoing that same sentiment. Can't be violent. You can't. You know, I think this goes with the the um, uh, the quick-tempered thing, right? Someone who is quick-tempered can easily become someone who is violent. And Paul is saying, that's not the message of the gospel. We bring a message of peace. We come in peace, right? This isn't a violent message. We, we don't, we're not violent people. That's not how our master Jesus taught us. You can't have someone who is in leadership promoting a gospel of peace when that person is violent. It, it, it can't work that way. It doesn't work inside the church, and it doesn't work outside the church. If if the, the first solution that this person has whenever there's an issue or a problem is, hey, man, I'm going to put my paws on you, right? Let's bust out the gloves, and let's, let's take care of this. Like, man, let's step outside, and let's take care of this. If that's that person's answer to solving church conflict, they can't be in leadership. If, if that's how they act when they're at, on the job site, that they, they immediately go into a, a violent situation or they respond with violence, they can't be leaders. Uh, man, this is the, Paul, Paul is not playing around here. He is setting a high bar. He is setting a high bar. And he, he, he also ends up by saying greedy for gain. There were people in the, in the early church who, who were trying to get followers, and they were teaching a distorted version of the gospel in order to gain monetarily, in order to make some money. And Paul, he, he, he X's that out. He says, that cannot be a characteristic of a leader. They can't be greedy for gain. I don't think Paul is saying here they have to be living in poverty. No, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. But you know... 
You can tell when someone is greedy for gain. Look, we all want to improve. We all want to do better financially speaking, but Paul is here talking about those who are greedy for gain. Like they'll do anything to make a buck. I mean, they'll, they'll knock over their own grandma if it'll get them a buck. You know, Paul says that person is not qualified for leadership. And so in verse seven, we, we have some very strict and some very high standards for anybody that Titus was going to be considering for church leadership. Let me read that list to you again. Now, after having the benefit of going through those qualities one by one, or the negative qualities, the things that they cannot possess, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. All of these negative characteristics or qualities, I think on the surface, they're the behavior, but they, they reveal what's really happening at the heart level. And so Paul is, Paul is, is giving these characteristics, these behaviors, but I think he's wanting Titus to understand, you know, the behavior is bad in and of itself, but understand Titus that that behavior, it's, it's just a symptom of what's really taking place in that person's heart. And so you need to deal with the heart first, not so much the symptoms. Yes, if they're displaying these symptoms, you need to deal with that, but be assured that there's some heart issues taking place beneath all of those symptoms or those behaviors that that you're observing. And then Paul in verse 8 talks about some of the characteristics that that should be demonstrated by these leaders. Verse 7 says, here's what they cannot have. Verse 8, here's what they should have. They must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And you so you almost get a counterbalance to all the stuff that we read in verse 7. Hospitable, lover of good. I mean, you, you love to do the things that are good. Self-controlled, remember, that goes back to the quick-tempered thing and even the drunkard thing and even the violent thing that it, uh, somebody who is presented with a, a negative situation or confronted, they're self-controlled. They know how to control themselves and not fly off the handle. The person is upright. Another word for that would be just, that they do what is right, right? They don't do what they feel they want to do because it'll it'll get them out of a bad situation or it'll make things easier for them. No, they go with what is right. They're not the kind of people who would say, well, it's a little white lie and it'll just make things a little bit easier. I won't get in trouble if I, if I say it's just a little white lie anyway. No, no. They're upright. They're just. They do what is right, and they love to do what is good. They are holy. That's a word that we don't hear a lot nowadays, holy. I know that when I was growing up in church, uh, I mean, you used to talk about holiness all the time. I mean, holy being holy was a, a, a pretty significant topic that was talked about pretty frequently. You don't hear about that a whole lot anymore. But but Paul is saying if if someone is going to serve in church leadership— They've got to be holy. And the, the way, the most basic way that I understand and define and, and explain holiness, being holy, is that you've made a conscious decision to separate yourself from what is evil and to dedicate yourself to God. So there's this dual component to being holy. In its most essence, essential sense, most basic sense, holy means separated. So you can be separated from something and be holy, or you can be separated to something and be holy. 
And I think that for us as as Christian bros in the 21st century looking to live, love, and lead to honor God, we are separated from evil. We're separated from the things of the world, and we make that decision to separate ourselves from those things under the power, the guidance, the, the grace of the Holy Spirit. We're separated from those things, but at the same time, we separate ourselves to the things of God and to God himself. And Paul here is calling Titus to look for leaders and establish leaders who are holy. They've decided to separate themselves from the things of Crete, the society, whatever society and culture at that time said was okay. No, separate yourselves from that and separate yourselves to God. And he ends the list by saying they have to be disciplined. And we, we saw that with, especially with a drunkard uh, negative quality, right? That someone who is given over to addictions or to vices or bad habits is someone who lacks self-control and discipline. And Paul is saying, if they're going to be in leadership in a church, these are the qualities they must possess. Now, I'm, I'm interested, verse 8, that being hospitable is one of the qualities or one of the characteristics that Paul lists for leadership. And, and when I first read this, like it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Why, why is being hospitable a necessary characteristic for, for church leadership, at least in Paul's eyes? And there, obviously there are, there are many different reasons, I'm sure. Uh, for example, a leader would have to be hospitable because when Paul would come back to Crete or when any other Christian brother or Christian leader would visit the island of Crete, you would expect that the leaders would open up their house to them so that they could have a place to stay. Well, a leader would have to be hospitable in order to, to host Paul, maybe even Titus, or any other Christian leader, or even just a Christian bro who would come to the island of Crete. I think that's, that's one scenario that Paul has in mind as he's saying, hey, these leaders have to be hospitable. They have to open up their homes when other Christians come to visit. But I think there's something else as well. This is... This is somewhat speculative because Paul doesn't elaborate on what it, why it's essential for these leaders to be hospitable, but I think it makes sense given the context that Paul was writing to. I, th- I think that these leaders had to be open to opening their homes for Christian gatherings. And they, they couldn't be these type of people who were like, oh man, I just, I don't want these people coming to my house. I, I don't want anybody over here, Right that lack of hospitality was really, it would really, really diminish their leadership. So Paul says they have to be hospitable. They have to be willing to open up their home to have gatherings perhaps at their home. But also what if these leaders were going to have to offer some Christian counsel, some, some spiritual guidance to somebody who was already in their, under their leadership and they had to invite them in their home and say, Hey, why don't you come over for a cup of coffee and and let's talk about this. They had to be hospitable and open them up, open up their homes so that these people could come in and they could minister them, uh, guide them, lead them, pray for them. What if being hospitable also meant you have to open up your homes to non-believers? Yeah. You have to let non-believers into your home. Why? So that you can share the gospel with them so that they can see how the gospel works out in your family life, in your marriage with your kids. If you don't have this quality, this characteristic of being hospitable, it's going to be hard for you 
to open up your home when Christian leaders come to visit the island, to open up your home for Christian gatherings, to open up your home for one-on-one discipleship sessions with believers in your congregation or in your church, and to open up your home for non-believers. They have to be hospitable. And I think under underlying this is the sense of, look, if you're going to be a Christian leader, you have to understand that what you have no longer belongs to you. It's for the kingdom, including your home. Your home, I think Titus would, would, would have to explain to these leaders, your home has now become an outpost of the kingdom of God. And if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be hospitable. You need to open your doors so that people can come in and they can be, that the gospel can be ministered to them. Those are those characteristics. I'm going to, I'm going to read them again. Verse eight, must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Those are great qualities to strive for. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So this person has to, has to know his Bible, right? The person has to know the gospel as, as he learned it. It's important. So that, and here's the reason why, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, Paul, I think what he's telling Titus is this. Look, it's not just having good leadership qualities or characteristics. This person also has to know know the gospel. They they have to know what they've been taught so that they can teach others and so that they, they can also contradict or refute those who are presenting a false gospel. And so Paul does not see a difference between leadership characteristics and leadership quality and spiritual development. He sees them as one and the same. I would say that Paul sees leadership development and discipleship as as nearly inseparable. There are some aspects that are distinct to each one, leadership development and, and spiritual formation. But I think Paul is saying here with, with these verses, verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1, look, spiritual development and leadership development, they go hand in hand. Leadership qualities, they go hand in hand, and they are just as important as knowing sound doctrine and being able to share sound doctrine with believers and non-believers alike, or those who are who are spreading false doctrines. So Paul Paul makes this, as I see it, a marriage between leadership qualities and characteristics and sound doctrine. You, you cannot separate them, at least in Paul's mind, at least in this passage, Paul is not trying to separate leadership development, leadership qualities from knowing sound doctrine. They go hand in hand, at least according to Paul. So as we look at this, I've been I've been trying my best just to stay in what it meant for them back there, what it meant for Titus specifically. But I, I want us to talk about what what we would how we would equip ourselves, how would we equip ourselves from this passage so that we can live, love, and lead, specifically lead to honor God. What would we take from this passage? Now that we've dissected it a bit, we have, I think, a good understanding of what the passage itself means what truths it teaches, what Paul perhaps intended to communicate. All right, let's take that and and let's extract some principles that we can apply in our leadership now in the 21st century as Christian bros so that we can be equipped to go out there and and live, love, and lead the way that we need to in order to honor God. And and here's some things that, that I see. When it comes to leadership development, character is more important than skill. When you have a chance, 
open up your Bible and go back and look at verses five through nine, Titus chapter one, verses five through nine. And when you look at all these different characteristics and qualities that Paul talks about, I want you to notice this. When it comes to leadership development, really what Paul lists is stuff that has to do with character. I really only see one, maybe two qualities or characteristics of a leader that have to do with skill. I see, of course, that this leader must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's, that's a skill. And maybe being hospitable, maybe I would characterize that as a skill, a leadership skill, uh, a skill that a leader needs to possess in order to be a good leader. Those are the two that I would see as skill. But everything else, everything else, even the hospitality thing, as I explained it earlier, everything else has to do with character, the character of the leader. And, and so twice in these verses, verses five through nine, Paul mentioned being above reproach. That has to do with character. And so as, as I extrapolate from this passage and I say, how would I equip myself from this passage as a Christian bro in the 21st century? I, I think I need to come to the realization that character is more important than skill. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that skill is not important. You need skill. If you're going to be a leader in your church, at home, at work, you need a certain set of skills. But Paul is emphasizing character over skill. And so as you, as you go on in your journey of spiritual formation, leadership development, I know you want to focus on the skill. I know you want to become maybe a, a better speaker. That's a leadership skill. I know you want to learn how to handle conflict resolution. That's a leadership skill. Don't ignore those things, but work on your character before you work on your skill. Or don't, don't give so much attention to the skill that you're ignoring the development of your own character. And just look at this list of character qualities or character characteristics that Paul lists in verse seven and verse eight of this chapter and, and see, okay, where am I? Am I developing these characteristics of character as a leader in my life? If not, where, where do I need the Holy Spirit to, to lead me and to teach me and to guide me so that I can develop those elements of character that are necessary for a leader? You've probably heard this said before, talent or skill will get you in the door, but your character is going to keep you there. Something to that effect. And what that means is that there are a lot of people with talent and skill out there and they, they might get hired. They might get that leadership position at church, but if they're lacking character, skill is not enough to keep you in that position. Talent is not enough to keep you there. It's your character that's going to keep you there. And so as, as you begin to think about this and as you maybe go back and look at this passage all over again, think about where do I need to develop character? What are the, the areas of my character that need further developing so that I can grow as a Christian leader? The other thing I would note from here is it's interesting to me that 
Paul says that the leaders that Titus is going to appoint, that they should already possess, they should already have these characteristics, right? They should be these type of people. They should not have these negative characteristics or qualities. And so what that tells me is that the process of appointing someone to leadership is is important and it may be backwards the way we do it now because right now I've seen this happen and unfortunately I've done this myself that I've I've appointed people to leadership positions hoping that they'll grow in their character now that they're in that leadership position kind of it's like wishful thinking like oh man you know they're really lacking in this area of their character but I bet I bet if I put them in this leadership role that that's going to change it Putting them in a leadership position is going to change that. They're, they're going to grow in that area of their character. I'll tell you that that's failed. When I've done that, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. If anything, that character flaw is only magnified. It, it only comes to the surface even stronger and more clearly. So what Paul is saying here is, look, when you appoint a leader, they should already have these characteristics they should already be displaying these characteristics. Then you put them in leadership. You don't put them in leadership hoping that they'll develop these characteristics. They can continue to grow in them for sure, no doubt. But you don't put them in a leadership role hoping, okay, this is what's going to fix them, so to speak. This is what's going to finally open up their eyes and make them develop in their character if I put them in a leadership role. That's not going to work. Paul would tell us now, right now in Christian in, in our Christian churches, in our Christian leadership. Now you guys are focusing too much on skill and, and you're ignoring character. And that's why you have so many church problems. That's why you have so much turnover. Focus on the character first and make sure that they have the character before you put them in a leadership role. And so I would, I would challenge you that maybe you, you've been wanting for your pastor or your leader to give you more leadership responsibilities. I would say, okay, are you giving them a reason to put you in leadership? Are you demonstrating not just the skill that is necessary, but are you demonstrating the character qualities that are necessary to be in Christian leadership at your church? And if not, then work on that and, and be forthright with your, with your pastor. Tell them, hey, I'm working on this. How can you guide me? How can you help me? Is there anything you can, you can share with me so that I can continue to grow in this area of my character? So if you, if you want to be in Christian leadership, understand you need to possess these qualities already. Uh, something else, your, your spiritual leadership begins at home. That became very evident to me as I read, as I read through this passage, spiritual leadership begins at home. He talks about in this passage being the husband of one wife and also overseeing your own kids. Spiritual leadership begins at home. And Paul essentially is saying, look, if, if, if this leader, this potential leader, this person you have in mind can't govern their own home, what business do they have trying to govern the church? So spiritual leadership begins at home. And I would also say this, your church needs you to be spiritually mature. Your church needs you to be a spiritually mature leader of irreproachable character. Your church needs leadership. And, and you're the one who can fill that void. Your church needs leadership. So grow in your leadership. Find out how to grow in that character quality that maybe you're missing or you're lacking your church needs leadership. And, and here's, here's where I'm going to take you into verses 10 through 16. Now, this is going to be very brief, very brief. I wanted to focus on verses five through nine, 
But listen, in verses 10 through 16, Paul is talking about false teachers, people who are coming into the church and just completely messing things up at the different congregations. And so he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Uh, They're upsetting entire households. And so Paul, here he gives the why of Christian leadership. Why do we need Christian leadership? Because at least in Crete, the churches that were already established were in chaos and disorder. And Paul was telling Titus, you, you can't do this on your own. You need Christian leaders who you can put in every church, in every town, so that when these people who are trying to mess things up come in to the church, you've got leaders who are there who can defend the gospel and with their character defend the gospel that way as well and protect the church from false teachings and from false teachers infiltrating the church. And I'm going to tell you, your church needs you to develop as a spiritually mature, doctrinally sound leader, because the situation is no different today. There are people who want to invade the church with false teachings, and we need leaders. And leadership development is not just going to be a development of your skills and your character, but that also means you need to be rooted in the Word. You you need to be rooted in Scripture. That's why I emphasize Bible study so much, because I really think that that's the beginning of it all. You need to be rooted in Scripture so that you can be a strong, mature, developing leader of character. And you can have all the leadership characteristics and all the skill, but if you're lacking in the Word, I think Paul would say, you're not fit to be a leader. You need to develop that in part because there will be people who will enter the church with false doctrines, with misleading doctrines, and that damages the church. So Paul says that this is why you need good, strong Christian leadership. Now, I want to I wanna leave you with, uh, with an assignment because this, this has to be missional living for us, right? We want to live, love, and lead to honor God. John Maxwell very famously says, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And I want you to think about how this upcoming week or this upcoming month, how is it that you're going to live in a way that you demonstrate godly leadership in your home with your family? What will you do? How are you going to demonstrate godly leadership in your church? And very importantly, how are you going to demonstrate godly leadership with a non-believing friend, co-worker, or neighbor. What will you take from Titus and from this episode of the podcast and use it missionally to demonstrate godly leadership at home, in your church, and out in the world with a non-believing friend? I want you to meditate on that. I want you to think on that. Maybe even go back and read Titus 5-16 through again. Let it sink in but live it out missionally. Live to honor God. Lead to honor God. Love to honor God. And take this passage and this episode and and figure out what is it that you're going to do in order to exert a godly, mature leadership at home, at church, and with your non-believing friend or co-worker. All right. So that's what I have for you in this episode. But before we we sign off, I do want to uh, recommend a resource to you about Bible study. This is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Uh, I've had this this uh, resource forever. I mean, this was one of the very first Bible study resources that I got when I was in Bible school. And this is this is a dictionary 
that's going to help you understand, and this is just for the New Testament, it'll help you understand key words from the Greek in the New Testament. Now, it's laid out in English, so no worries there, but this is a great resource. If you want to dig deeper, let's say, for example, the word elders or or uh, overseers here in Titus, you can look that up in this dictionary, and, and you're going to get a lot more information, get a much clearer understanding of what that word means, which in turn is going to help you understand the passage better. It's called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Originally, this is a 10-volume dictionary, but it's also available in a one-volume dictionary. That's the one that I would recommend you start with. If you get the the physical copy, it's a hardcover. If you get the physical copy, it's going to cost you about $80. But if you get the digital copy on Logos Bible software, it's going to cost you about $60. I use this a lot, and uh, I think it'd be a great resource to add to your personal Bible study library. Again, that's the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I'll leave links in the show notes in the description of this podcast. So you can go directly to the websites that have it, Logos or Amazon, and see if it's something that you would consider adding to your library. I think it would be a good addition to your Bible study library. All right, bro, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you've gotten some benefit out of this Bible study, this deep dive. And we did a deep dive into Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We we dissected this puppy, man. We we, we did it. We dissected a puppy. Didn't mean to say that. Anyway. We did a deep dive. I hope this benefited you. I hope this helps you as you continue on your journey to live, love, and lead to honor God. And until next time, God bless, bro.